0: That was fun. I keep listening to these musicians and qu- all day, amen? Yeah. Great job. <laughs> well, good morning again. Good morning. Good morning. First day of spring. How are you doing on the first day of spring? I just thought it was the 21st. Did they change that? It on the month. It's the 10th of the month? the month? It depends on the month. I've learned something today, but is, today is the first day, Yes. Or does it happen at some, is there like official time? Was it midnight? 5.21. 521. There is at least one theologian among us this morning. 5.21 p.m. or a.m.? So it's yet to come. All right, so 5.21, we get out our pots and pans and we start, because it's spring, yes? The spring solstice. Would you like to preach this morning? Okay. Thank you. This, this, is, this is week number five of our study of the essentials of the Christian faith. What um, I'm suggesting is a place where we can find and we must find common ground among brothers and sisters in the faith. If we are indeed to be unified in our diversity, as Jesus prayed the night before he died, that we would maintain that unity. So far, in the five weeks, we've been discussing God. Specifically, go figure, we started with God. And we started by asking, how do we know God? And we saw that we know God because he chose to reveal himself to us in creation And in Scripture, and in personal relationship with us, he revealed himself to us. That's how we know him. And he revealed himself to us as a God that wants to be in relationship with us. And then we looked at what is God like? We looked at all of those attributes or characteristics of what is God like before summarizing them into two overall concepts. Remember, I suggested to you we could summarize those characteristics as God's greatness and God's goodness. God is great, God is good. Better yet, God is greatness. God is goodness. And finally, the last time we were together, we looked at the ramifications, the effect of his greatness and goodness, really. One effect is about him is that he is both imminent and transcendent. He is both intimately involved in every single moment of every single day, in every single person's life. He is that imminent, And he is also at the same time so different, so perfect, so powerful, so unique, that he is entirely separate from the creation that he made. And we even got to look a little bit at the Trinity along the way, right? And uh, we saw, among the other profound things that we studied, that God is like a banana, right? And if you weren't here, you're thinking, oh boy, I don't know if I'm going to go to this church. That church they teach God is like a banana. But he was... uh, He's like a banana, in a way at least. A banana is a fair illustration of the uh, Trinity, I think, because, as you saw, if you put pressure on the banana on the long end, it will always break into three equal but separate parts of the same substance, known technically as banana substance. And each part, fully banana, of the same substance exactly to the molecule as the other, but each part is fully its own. How many of you, how many of you followed your assignment, took the banana that I gave you or we gave you after service, and you shared that Trinity illustration with someone over the past couple of weeks? Anybody? Yeah, quite a few this morning too. Some of you emailed me about those stories. I think one ended up in a food fight, but you know, that's Okay. <laughs> And maybe the rest of you, maybe the rest of you were so hungry after the service that you ate your illustration on the way to the car. Yeah, it's, the per- it's one of the perils of edible teaching aids, or, or maybe longish sermons, I don't know. This morning, this morning we'll continue our Common Ground Essentials series by concluding our study of God in particular. Although we'll never quite escape the study of God, since God is life. But the question that I'm uh, putting out there for us to ask this morning is this one. What does God do? What does he do? We've seen how do we know God, what is God like, and this morning I'd like to briefly look at what does God do. And oh my goodness, or more biblically, holy Moses God does a lot, and there's many, many, many different ways that we could tackle and address that question of what God does or what does God do, many approaches we could take. We could talk about, for example, God's sovereignty, and actually we will, although I don't know that we'll use the word. We'll talk about it in a roundabout way this morning. Because the approach that I'd like to take this morning, I'd like to take the opportunity this morning to respond to easily the toughest question I ever get from kids and adults alike, especially from students. Recently, someone did a survey of a leading evangelical Christian college that is especially noted for the high intellect of both its faculty and its student body. And the same question that I'm about to give you that I always get from students, too, that that same question was number one on their list of the most difficult and vexing problem facing them in connection with their faith. And so chances are that this is a question that, that many of us here today have either asked ourselves, or maybe someone has asked you this question, and I'll bet, I would imagine this same question is high on the list of those who don't know God yet, or don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and, and even are hesitant to put their faith and trust in him because this question in particular troubles them and is one of the reasons that puts them off. And this tough question takes various forms, but it goes something like this. If God is great and God is good, then how can evil be present? If God is greatness, if God is goodness, then what's up with all of the evil evident around us? We saw a few weeks ago that God's greatness includes the truth that he is all-powerful. And so since God is all-powerful, then you'd think someone all-powerful, infinitely powerful Which he is, you'd think that he can prevent evil from happening, couldn't you? Wouldn't you? And if God is goodness, well, then he would never, ever wish for evil to happen. But there is rather evident evil all around us, isn't there? So, what gives? If God is great and God is good, then how can evil be all around us? Have you ever asked that question when something happens? Or had someone ask you that question when something happens in their lives or the lives of others? I imagine many today in Japan have asked that question and many throughout history have asked that question no one more than the folks in the bible have asked that tough question i thought god is all powerful he is i thought that god is Love. Oh, he is. Then why wouldn't he keep this from happening to me? Really tough question. Before tackling it, this question that theologians call theodicy, or the problem of evil for short. And if we add to that bumper sticker, problem of evil in light of God's greatness and goodness. The problem of evil in light of God's greatness and goodness. Maybe that helps us better remember what this problem of evil is we're talking about. But before tackling that question, what's up with evil in light of God's greatness and goodness, one brief commercial break that we need to keep firmly in mind. And this needed commercial break comes from theologian Millard Erickson, among many others, but Erickson puts it this way. We should not set our expectations too high in endeavoring to deal with the problem of evil. This is a very serious problem. Perhaps the most severe of all the intellectual problems facing theism, belief in God. This problem has occupied the attention of some of the greatest minds of the Christian church, intellects of such stature as Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. And none of them was able to put the problem to rest finally and completely. We should therefore not be unduly depressed if we cannot settle the issue in some final fashion. Oh, that's great advice for us to remember on this and many other theological issues. You see, we're in that area again where we need to be reminded, at least I need to be reminded, maybe you do too, That while very valuable, the tool of intellect or human reason is not sufficient to fully explain God. And we need to be reminded that truth does not depend on our ability to fully comprehend or fully explain it. I fall into that trap all the time. God tells us in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet asks, Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? All rhetorical questions begging the answer well, no one, of course. You see, if we require God to make complete sense before we believe, don't we limit God to what human reason can comprehend? Human reason that God created is something that a creator creates, going to limit, box in who God is and if we wait till we can fully comprehend, or if we run all truth through the grid of, I'm not going to accept this until I can fully comprehend it, don't we in fact set ourselves up as God? Or human reason as God? Or at least an idol? Reason is a valuable tool in understanding God, but it cannot fully explain God. That used to really trouble me and really challenge my faith. It doesn't anymore. In fact, it's done a 180, praise God. And here's why, as much as I can put into words the inadequacy of human reason to fully explain God, it it frees me. It frees me to cry out in wonder and amazement and even joy that our God is even beyond what the brightest human intellectual mind could ever conceive. I mean, wow! There's been some smart people. And our God, how great and how good is our God? So great that the best, you take it and add it all together, the best think tank, the best human reason can offer still falls way short of fully fathoming the glory of God. Praise God it does. Praise God that there's more than what my mind or any mind can fully comprehend, infinitely more. Praise God, he's greater than the mind of humanity. Oh, can I get an amen? Amen. Who can fully fathom God indeed? Isaiah. So, with that commercial commercial message firmly in mind that reason cannot fully explain all there is to know about god and specifically in regard to our topic this morning reason cannot fully resolve the problem of evil in light of god's greatness and goodness reason the never reason nevertheless can help can alleviate the problem somewhat it can give us at least a sense of the direction that the final and complete answer to the problem comes from. That source of knowledge that is God, but that source of knowledge that one day when we have the ability to completely understand and comprehend, we will, but don't yet. So human reason, at least, it meets up with a divine and heavenly reason for lack of a better term, and we can see at least where it's coming from. And in that way, it can help, I think. So, if you, like so many, including me, have ever asked yourself or have ever asked something like, if God is great and God is good, then how is evil still present Here are some things at least I think that can be helpful in starting at least to explain the problem of evil. And my hope and prayer is that may help provide courage and comfort. First, and in my mind at least, probably foremost is the issue of free will. We've talked about this one in the past, but it's been some time. And briefly, when... When perplexed, why evil persists despite God's greatness and goodness, despite his desire to defeat it entirely and his ability to do so, why it still exists, it helps me to remember that God made people with free will. And in order for there to be free will or free choice to give it any meaning or effect at all, there has to be something to choose between, or it's a sham. And those things are good and evil. Obedience or disobedience. And God created people with the ability to choose. And he's pretty stubborn about making sure he holds that ability, that integrity that the creator of the universe gives to each person here and each person who has ever lived. The creator of the universe Gives you the ability, the right to choose. He died for it, really. And so, for God to prevent evil right now, let's say on this first day of spring, He was going to celebrate this spring. First day of spring 2011, I'm going to rid the world of evil right now. Well, he would have to make humanity other than it is right now, in effect, wouldn't he? He'd have to make us robots without the ability to freely choose or without giving us a choice. And God apparently felt that. He felt that for reasons... That were evident to him, but that we can only partly understand. It was better to make human beings than robots. Some might ask in response to that, I know I have, maybe you have too, well, why did God create at all? Or why didn't He create a world without human beings? Or angels? Evil would have been avoided altogether, wouldn't it? Now, in a sense, we can't fully answer that question since we are not God. But evidently, God decided it was better to create beings capable of fellowship and love and obedience like angels and human beings, even in the face of temptations to do otherwise. Sometimes my students then ask me, well, why doesn't God just get rid of that evil right now? And my response is, well, for him to get rid of evil right now would mean to rid the world of human beings. Because what human being doesn't ever contribute, at least, in some way to the evil in the world by some action or inaction or word or deed or thought? And so, oddly enough, Ironically enough, when you first hear it, love is what keeps God from obliterating evil right now. And in Genesis 6, God promised he would never again wipe out virtually the entire human race, as in the flood, and God can't go back on his promise, so he can't get rid of evil right now. And so the presence of genuine free will is one start at least, at a response to the problem of evil despite God's greatness and goodness. Second, another one that helps me when facing the problem of evil is to remember that my perspective is often short-sighted. Do you suffer from that too sometimes? I often can't see the whole forest because I'm just stuck behind the tree right in front of me. What I mean is that some things, at least... And this helps me with some forms of evil. But some things, at least, that, that I see as evil right now or feel evil to me in the moment right now may not, in fact, be evil in the long run or may not be evil to everyone even right now. A couple examples of that, a marathon runner may feel the burning pain in her lungs as evil, but, in fact, maybe it's a necessary good to spur her on to finish the race well. How can the same thing be evil and good? Well, a farmer may see rain as good to water his crops, but the Colorado Department of Transportation may view that same storm as an evil because it washed out the road. And so in trying to keep an open mind to a long-term or big picture, that helps me at least to alleviate the problem of evil in some ways. Third, It helps me to remember that God did not create evil. He is not the author of evil. He only created a universe where humans, and angels too for that matter, He only created a universe with the possibility of His creation choosing evil. This one's a close cousin to the free will we just talked about. God made everything, remember? And then declared it ma tov. Very good. No evil. Presumably what happened next is the angel Satan and his angel followers rebelled. And Satan then tempted Adam and Eve and stirred within them that desire to sin. So God didn't create evil he merely created the option. And lots and lots and lots of evil in the world today is caused not by God, but by people choosing to disobey God. I get caught all the time in the evil from the consequences of my own choices. Do you? Or I get caught all the time in the evil consequences of the choices of other people. Do you? Or the evil of a fallen world that soon will take the form of weeds in my lawn. <laughs> and more serious things, too, like disease and tidal waves and earthquakes. We get caught up in those, too, yes? so it helps me to remember that God didn't create that. He only created the option. Next, and this one's huge for my comfort and encouragement when facing evil, I hope you find it helpful too. It helps me it helps me to remember that God himself stepped in and became the ultimate victim of evil. One theologian puts it it this way. It is remarkable that while knowing that he himself would become the major victim of the evil resulting from sin, God allowed sin to occur anyway. The triune God knew that the second person, the second person in the Trinity, Jesus, the second person would come to earth and would be subject to numerous evils hunger, fatigue, betrayal, ridicule, rejection, suffering, and death. And he did this in order to negate sin and thus its evil effects. And I love this phrase. God is a fellow sufferer with us of the evil in the world. And Oh, I find that comforting when I'm suffering from evil. And consequently, God's able to deliver us from evil. What a measure of love this is. Anyone who would impugn the goodness of God for allowing sin and consequently evil must measure that charge against the teaching of Scripture that God himself became the victim of evil so that he and we might be victors over evil. It's a great encouragement to me that God suffers along with me when evil affects me. And of course that he himself came and took it all on Calvary in his suffering and death on a cross. Last is the promise of the life hereafter. There is no question that this life is full of injustice and innocent suffering. But Christianity teaches, and it's unique in this way, Christianity teaches that there will be a day of reckoning a day of judgment and a day of vindication where every single sin that has ever been committed will be recognized. And the godly completely vindicated. Evil will be justly punished. And eternal life will continue for all who have responded to God's loving offer. There will be hell to pay for evil. Evil and for the evil one, literally. And perhaps that helps us when we remember that nothing happens unknown to God in a corner somewhere. Every tear that has ever been shed due to sin in a fallen world will be completely vindicated and addressed. At this point, I might get the question from someone how could a loving God ever send anyone to hell? While we haven't the time to fully discuss hell, maybe one day we will. I'll offer this much in response to that question. We need to remember, as we've mentioned already this morning, that sin, sin is a person's decision to go his or own way rather than to follow God. Throughout life, A person says to God, in effect, leave me alone. Hell, the absence of God, is God's simply giving that person at last what he or she has always asked for. In my opinion, it is not God, but one's own choice that sends a person to hell. Now, while I find these things helpful, I hope you do too in dealing with the problem of evil. While I find them helpful, you know, they're mostly helpful, aren't they? On an intellectual level. <laughs> Such is unfortunately too often the, the nature of theology. It is by definition the study of God and this is largely how we study and so theology in this respect is it's largely the attempt of that imperfect tool of human reason to explain the things of God. And don't get me wrong, it's a worthy and necessary endeavor, that's good. James tells us, consider joy when evil happens to us doesn't help doesn't tell us to feel joy or throw a party over evil things happening but encourages us to think about joy consider as a greek thinking word brief tangent here but while we're on the topic english translations inexplicably add the word it there in james they translate the greek consider it joy The NIV, I think, thankfully, still puts the it in italics to tell you that it isn't there in the original Greek, that Greek verb normally, if ever, does not need an object. A far better translation, in my opinion, is consider joy, not consider it joy. God would never ask us to dance and sing with joy when something terrible happens to us or someone we love. And so this is one of the poorest translations, in my opinion, given its ramifications in the entire Bible, in my opinion. Consider joy is the correct translation. James urges us to keep thinking, keep thinking when evil hits. And that's what we do when we study things like we've studied this morning. So that's good and it's helpful. But while I hope that What we've only had time this morning to just touch upon helps us and helps others to deal with the problem of evil in light of God's greatness and goodness. I also want to remind us that we need to guard against soothing the intellect only with concepts when evil hits. What I mean is this. If someone comes to us, if someone comes to you wrestling with the problem of evil, their intellect may not be the only thing that's wrestling with the problem. In fact, it may not be their intellect at all. Instead, they're hurting. Because they can't figure it out, maybe, but also likely, if not certainly, emotionally, physically, spiritually, Suffering evil hurts in real ways at every level. Not just because we can't figure it out. Maybe they're under attack from the spiritual realm around them. So often a better response to the problem of evil in the world isn't to try and understand it intellectually, but a better response to the problem of evil is to do everything we can to lessen the problem by confronting evil, defeating evil with good in Jesus' name. When something awful happens to someone, better to do all we can to help them in their pain by providing for their needs rather than only explaining to them that the pain Your pain is the result of the necessity of free will, for example. (laughs) That's where theology can utterly fail. And it's not really theology that fails. It's our use of it or our lack of using it to its full extreme, which involves action too. Be careful. I need to be careful. of satisfying of responding to the problem of evil by only attempting to alleviate my intellect's need to know only. Instead, bring comfort to someone suffering evil, or seek comfort from God or from your brothers and sisters in Christ, others when evil happens to you. Humble yourself to do that, to receive it. It can take humility sometimes. Empathize with people, cry with them, sacrifice your time and attention and resources to help heal them. Pray for them, battle on their behalf the spiritual forces that may well be coming against them. Give them food, give them clothes, give them something to drink, give them your ears, and listen. In a word, love them. Because this is what God does. He loves people. And so he tells us to witness who he is by loving them too. Go figure. God's love takes so many forms. He protects them. He encourages them. He helps people. He provides for people. He empathizes with people. And yes, he informs them of the truth too many times not to the satisfaction or full satisfaction of our intellect but hopefully in ways that help but we are the hands and feet not just the head or mind or intellect of god in his plan and the heart of god ought to be evident in us this is one of those areas where job's friends utterly failed him isn't it I've never heard this taught I'm sure it has been if not maybe it's wrong but consider with me have you ever noticed that the only comfort they offer is counsel words explanation um you know thanks guys but it hurts Do you even care? How is it that not one of you have asked me about even one of those 10 kids that I just lost? Don't you see that I'm in despair? I'm battling a spirit of depression. Did any one of Job's friends offer him food, medicine, prayer? Give him a few of their own cattle so Job could get started again? Did any of them express empathy for a grieving father? Yeah, they sat there with him, which may have been comforting to Job, a comfort of presence. But the whole time they offered only Explanation. Seems a little hollow, doesn't it? I wonder if that's part of the reason, at least, that Job's friends needed forgiveness at the end of Job's stories for talking only. Maybe that's the common ground essential for us this morning. We've reaffirmed, I hope, that God is great and God is good despite the presence of evil in the world, even if we can't fully comprehend how that works together. And perhaps that's intellectual common ground, and needed. But included in our common ground is that we do everything we possibly can to be the greatness and goodness of God to others, despite the presence of evil in the world, by helping hurting people. Not only in word or explanation, but in deed as well. Not only in deed, but also in word. Both. And I would hope that would be common ground. And listening to the rancor in the church today between those who seem to especially hold word important and those who especially hold deed important and to hear them talking about the other as if the others don't care about word or deed, I we need both. I think, is an essential common ground. We are to be a light in the darkness, a darkness that evil is and so often causes in people's lives. They're confusion, they're chaos. The Bible calls darkness. And where to be a light. Speaking of light, you were each given one when you came in this morning, right? Yeah. If you didn't get one, you can get one on the way out. Go ahead, take out your lights. Now, yeah, so you already turned them on. You don't, so you get a light. It's like one of the hardest things in the world, isn't it? Although some of you, some of you immediately turned it off. It's like, well, no, you don't have to. Isn't that something about a light? You get a light, you how many of you, when you took that thing out of there, first thing you did? <laughs> Everybody, right? Someone in the early service, uh, before the service, you know, I, I walked in with them and I saw them take it and they went, "Whoop!" And I went, "Well, you, just, you know, you have to turn it on." And the and the guy said to me, "Well, that's like light. If you are light, you just have to turn it on." And I thought that'd be a great sermon illustration, but it's not what I'm doing today. The reason we wanted to give you lights, and by the way, your staff, um, your church staff, uh, spent considerable time putting these all together and the batteries in there, so give them a hand. Thank them when you see them. I think I've got carpal tunnel in my wrist as a result of unscrewing this thing. But But we wanted to give you something. I wanted to give you something that, you know, you could add to the little knick-knacks and takeaways we've been giving you. I... Are they like all in one place or are they scattered to the four corners of the earth over the last couple of years? I got these red and blue crystals yet like all over my house. They're, I'm reaching in the couch, I red and blue crystals. That. Put it on your nightstand, put it in your car. Maybe it fits uh, you know, in one of your little pen, pen holders, although it's kind of thick. Whenever you see it or whenever you use it, maybe you'll think of how it is that we know God. Maybe you'll think what God is like. And maybe you'll think, what does God do or what should we do about the problem of evil? Because all the answers can be summarized in Be Light. Isn't it interesting that light is the very first thing that God created? Third verse in Genesis, couldn't wait to do it. In the beginning was God, blah, 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 hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light! (laughs) (laughs) Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9, let me get it completely right. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I often wonder uh, when Jesus was a boy and growing up, I wonder when the first time it is that he read and took that scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 9, verse 2, and read that. And I often wonder, in his humanity at least, was it a moment of self-discovery? He read that messianic passage about the Messiah being light, and I wonder if at some point he went, oh, that's me. I am the light of the world, which he later told his disciples. So I love the picture. I love the picture of light of both of who God is and then for what we are to be to others in the dark places in their lives. One of the best teachers that I ever was blessed to sit under for some time is a pastor just down the road, Bill Odomolin at Foothills Bible Church. I learned so much from Bill. And over the years, I've got snippets and things of, of, that he said that deeply impacted my walk and my life, and, 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 and one of them has to do with light and darkness. I might have shared, shared it with you before, but I remember one time he said, you know, so many, of the fo- so many times, the followers of God, we go around and we yell at people in the darkness because they can't see in the dark. And then he said, Well, of course they can't see in the dark. It's dark in the dark. What good does it do to yell at them? Instead, be light. So they can see. All right. John told me. Oh, i got to let you go. I'm sorry. Boy, it's really long today. It's Nathan's fault. (laughs) John told me you could get it really dark in here. How dark can we get it in here, John? Whoa. Ah! Some of you are scared of the dark. Okay, everybody turn off their lights. Some of you are just covering them up. Okay, there we go. Look out there. Okay. If anyone in here has the name Angelina, turn on your light. Okay, how about Elizabeth or Beth? Oh, hold it up high. It's her middle name. That's okay. Okay, now as you all look around, okay, well, let's do it this way. Just look around. Okay, anybody who has a birthday in March? Anyone who has a birthday in August. Oh, including March. March, keep your light shining. And now add to it anyone in October. November. December. All the rest. Look at the light. Be light to people. You know, if they're suffering from the problem of evil, bless you. (laughs) If they're suffering from the problem of evil, maybe they'll want or need or ask you for an explanation of how that can be in light of God's greatness and goodness, but another approach might be in response to the problem of evil, be the solution or part of the solution in community with other brothers and sisters by being God's greatness and goodness to them. Amen? Amen. I have to share with you this morning when I was waving my light saying, Be Light, it went out. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pretty sure it's one of those that uh, Rebecca Ruptek put together. So... (laughs) (laughs) all right would you stand please for god's benediction you can keep your light shining if you like (laughs) this is from psalm 36 david the shepherd writes your love lord reaches to the heavens your faithfulness to the skies your righteousness is like the highest mountains your justice like the great deep you lord preserve both people And animals, this sheep lover wrote. (laughs) How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Enjoy your first day of spring. God bless you all.